0: What is the state? How does it preserve itself? What does it fear? These are the questions Murray Rothbard uncovers in his powerful book, Anatomy of the State. Thanks to our generous donors, the Mises Institute is offering a free copy of this Rothbard classic to Human Action Podcast listeners. Get your
1: copy at mises.org slash H-A pod free. That's H-A like Human Action pod free.
0: This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy.
1: Jonathan, welcome back yet again to the Human Action Podcast. Hi, Bob. It's good to be back. So, people are probably at home wondering, what is this guy doing to keep getting on the show? Well, he keeps writing good articles, and the latest was poking fun at Paul Krugman. I was intrigued, but I thought, you know, and I read it and I said, no, this is valid stuff. And, uh, what's amazing to me is how much the left-wing progressives, well, it's sort of Jonathan, like how, um, they were very much against Nazis until the whole stuff (laughs) over in uh, the middle East started flaring up again. And then all of a sudden, you know, Nazi rhetoric wasn't too offensive. Likewise. Uh, I have never seen so many economists saying how inflation helps poor people than I have in the last two years uh, with Democratic economists. (laughs) So with that sort of uh, provocative uh,
0: opening, do you want to explain what the thesis is of your latest column? Sure. I was responding to an article by uh, Krugman where he was uh, basically just saying uh, it doesn't make sense uh, for consumer sentiment to, to be so low right now. Uh, because the economy is doing great. We've solved the inflation problem, or at least we're getting close to solving it. And um, unemployment is is still at historic lows. And it seems like you know, if we look at those sorts of things, there's no reason why consumers should be pessimistic about the economy. So he he looks at the uh, University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment uh, uh, Survey uh, data, and he he's comparing how how people are reporting what they feel about the economy and comparing it to his interpretation of economic conditions and he's saying this doesn't match up. And what he found was that there was this, um, this, this study that was done that showed that partisanship explains a part of it. P- partisanship explains like 30% of the divergence between the economic conditions and consumer sentiment. And, of course, uh, Krugman is blaming this on Republicans. So it's the Republicans who are just mad about Biden being in the White House. And so that is driving their pessimism about the economy in general. And so what I did was I I looked at the the inside data of the uh, University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey. And I I found out that they construct this index based on on the consumer's answers to a few different questions. They ask questions about uh, what is what is your household's current financial condition? How do you expect your household's financial condition to, to be over the next 12 months? How do you think the economy in general is going to go over the next 12 months and five years? And then they also asked this question about whether now is a good time to buy consumer durables like uh, furniture or household appliances like a refrigerator. And so when I was looking at it, I, I was thinking that if Krugman is right, it means that the the Republicans, the nasty Republicans who are, who are biasing this survey, they would probably be channeling their, uh, their distaste for Biden being in the white house through the questions that are about how you think the economy in general is going mm-hmm. over the next 12 months or the next five years. So they would, they would be saying they or they would be reporting. Yeah, I think, uh, Biden being in the white house is not good for the economy. Therefore, I- I'm pessimistic about the economy as a whole. But what I found is that, those, while those did go up a little bit uh the the main question that that spiked uh since 2020 especially was uh the the responses to the question about consumer durables so it was it was basically just people saying now is a terrible time to buy furniture now is a terrible time to buy a new TV or a new fridge for the house and so i i just think that that's that's probably uh, not realistic for, or at least it definitely doesn't go along with uh, Krugman's hypothesis here, because you would think that they would be channeling the, their political partisanship through those other questions, not through the one that's based on the affordability of, of those big household items. And so I, I, I basically just question uh, Paul Krugman's whole hypothesis there about partisanship driving the the divergence of consumer sentiment and, and economic reality. And then at the end of the article, and we can talk about some of these things, I, I just mentioned a few different things that, that, that definitely do not give the consumers a, a good reason to be optimistic about the economy in general.
1: Okay, great. So again, folks, big picture is that the progressive economists are... You know, normally people that you would think would be aghast and pointing out how much, you know, everything hurts the poor women and minorities more than it hurts, you know, the privileged, right? Like that's kind of the standard uh, view among left-wing progressives. And yet this is the one time in history that I can recall where they're explaining how the economy the last couple of years has been really great for the little guy. And hey, it's those fat cats that are finally getting, you know, really feeling the pinch of, I guess, higher egg prices. And uh, and by the way, folks, I'm being a little bit snarky, but I am not putting words in their mouth. Literally, uh, many progressive economists are giving charts and things purporting to show that uh, the biggest gainers of the last two years have been like the bottom quintile of workers, that they've seen the most gains in terms of their real wages and such so like i'm not putting words in them out there literally saying that um and i i guess we can't prove this Jonathan, but i'm pretty sure if trump had been in the white house during this period they would not be saying how much inflation is is helping poor people i i don't think they would be saying that
0: yeah and that was my conclusion at the end that it's it seems like krugman's uh um Views here are really driven by his own partisanship. So, like, he, it seems like he's the one who's trying to resurrect this uh, this narrative of of a, a great economy, and it's obviously because he's on the left um, and wants Democrats to be elected. So, yeah, it definitely seems like they're they're sort of grasping. They're they're trying to find um, all these these reasons for for people to be optimistic, and therefore, when when Krugman doesn't see that people are as optimistic as he thinks they ought to be, then um, he says, well, look, the inflation is back down to two and a half or 3%, depending on the measure that you look at and, and employment is at historic lows. So everybody just needs to be happy. So <laughs> it's, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think, I think the economists who who are doing that sort of thing, they're, they're the ones who are driven by partisanship, not necessarily the, the average American consumer.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, and the thing I really liked about your article, uh, and you you mentioned it here, but I just want to highlight it just to make sure people didn't uh, miss it. Is that you really you really dug into you know not just the, the headline numbers about you know how what do people think about the economy things like that do they feel un- unsure or whatnot, but you dug into the specific questions. And again, one of the arguments that people on the left will make to explain this phenomenon, like gee, how can it be? I mean, we as economists we're checking all the objective facts here. And the economy is awesome. And yet, for some reason, there's a lot of people that, that seem to think otherwise. How, how can that be? And so one theory that is offered is they'll say, oh, maybe people, um, you know, th- in their own personal life, their own financial situation is OK. But, you know, in other words, like, like their, their pay has more than outpaced the rise in prices at the grocery store, but they don't know that everybody else has gotten raises, too, and so they're just assuming, oh, even though we're doing okay, you know, yeah, things are more expensive now than they were two years ago. But we got my my take home pay has gone up too, and actually we're we're ahead of the game. That's why we're going out to eat more and da da da. But surely the fact that everything is so much more expensive must be hurting other people, like that. So that's the the theory that some have offered to explain this this discrepancy in express consumer sentiment versus what these. Uh, progressive economists know the the data indicate, and so again, Jonathan, can you just repeat, like, wh- why? You, what did you see in the data that show, no, that's that's not a good explanation. Like, yeah, maybe everybody's wrong, but it's not that they know their own personal financial situation's great. It's just they're assuming erroneously that
0: oh, maybe everyone else is getting hurt by these high prices. Well, the the two of the questions that are used in the construction of the index. They they ask the consumers to report specifically about their own household. So the, so two two of them are about the economy in general, but two of them are specifically about the that that respondent's own household. And and really, I mean, it's all it's all a wash. If, even if you look at the the data just on those on those uh, components of the consumer sentiment um, index. Um, I mean, they they all increase uh, to a greater or lesser extent in 2020. Uh, but the, the 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 one that definitely increases the most is the is the affordability of consumer durables question. But but the point and when that you I, say increase,
1: that is a bad thing,
0: right? Sorry, I so the the way that I downloaded the data from the University of Michigan um, uh, website, it has it has the actual survey respondent scores, and it goes from. One to five, I think, where one is is great. I'm I'm very optimistic, and then five is things things are going to hell in a handbasket. So, um, so one of the questions is the expectations of of personal financial situation a year from now, and that one looks like it has that one decreased the least, or excuse me, increased the least, going from the 2019 to 2021 period, so like the pre and post COVID. So that that one that one's very specific about that that respondent's own household's financial condition, and so it it's, uh, it seems like a stretch to think that people are interpreting these questions as they're they're trying to answer about their neighbors or trying to answer about other people um, around them. It seems like they would they would they would answer according to their own projections of their own household's financial condition, not necessarily try to not not do their own sort of subjective interpretation of other people's financial condition and then report on that, but really report on their own. Uh, but that that one uh, increased, got worse, I should say, that one uh, got worse to a less extent uh, than the other questions, it seems like. Um, and, and like I said, the one that got the worst was the affordability of uh, consumer durables.
1: Right. So in a nutshell, it's not merely that people are saying like, Oh, I think the country's headed on the wrong path or yeah, I think the economy's bad, but specific questions like, are you going to buy a new washing machine in the next 12 months? The number of people saying yes to that is lower than like it, it was before.
0: Right. And it, it got, uh, pe- people were uh, very optimistic or I should say they were, uh, they, they reported that now was a good time to buy consumer durables. Um, their, their ratings on that were very good from like the 2015 to 2020 range, but then it, it, it spiked up, um, and got, and got really bad, it got really pessimistic, um, after 2020. So, and so what I did was I, I, I tried to explain why consumers might, might report that way. So like, why would they answer that now is not a good time to, to buy those big, uh, uh purchases for your house. And I would think the
1: most likely answer is because of the one five numbering being counterintuitive. Maybe they were actually <laughs> trying to well, say Krugman's right. And then just, they coded it wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, Almost like a, uh, Florida voting problem. Um, but so what I did was I, I looked at, um, th- there's a specific sub section, sub part of the consumer price index that just, that just pulls out prices of consumer durables. And so in my article, I showed a graph of that. And of course, you don't even need to, to look at the graph to, to know that the prices of those things skyrocketed, especially in uh, 2021. Uh, but another thing is that I looked at uh, credit card rates, which have also gone up. So credit card uh, average credit card rates were around 15, um, and then they're up past 20 uh, now. And so a lot of people will buy those sorts of items with their credit cards. And so, I mean, it seems to me like the way that they're responding to the consumer durable question In the university of michigan uh survey i mean it it makes sense like yeah now is not a good time to buy those sorts of things the prices are going up and it's more expensive to finance those purchases if i choose to buy with a credit card so uh, there's just more evidence to show that it's not it's not republicans who are angry about biden in the white house it's not republicans who are just who, who are doing fine economically but they are trying to bias the survey because they're pessimistic about who's who's in control um, it, I, I, it just seems like the, at least in this case, the survey respondents are, are accurately sharing their own interpretation of, of now is not a good time to buy mm-hmm. those sorts of big purchases.
1: Yeah. So let me, uh, draw people's attention. So I'm looking here at Krugman's article called new perspectives on the field, bad economy from November 14th, 2023. And his opening line is just so ironic. He says, almost two years have passed since I began trying to draw people's attention to the widening gap between economic perceptions and economic reality. So, right, I agree that two years prior to this, there were some people who had this huge gap between their perception and reality, such as Paul Krugman. So let us just take a moment, folks, and remind you that back in, so early 2021, Krugman had a Debate with Larry Summers, and Summers was warning that the Fed's you know, loose monetary policy and the aggressive stimulus, uh, you know, during the COVID era, was going to cause unacceptably high price inflation. And you know, and he was worried as a as a Keynesian that so when the Fed tightens on that, it's going to crash the economy. You know, that kind of thing. Maybe we need to take our foot off the gas. That was his. Approach. Krugman said he was wrong. That no, the rising prices we've seen are just. Because a supply bottleneck, that's the kind of stuff you'd expect. Then, by summer of twenty twenty one, Krugman and I—I I haven't been able to find him. Hopefully, folks, by the in the post production of this episode, I can get the exact you know thing and put it in the show notes page. But I distinctly remember it was sometime in the summer of twenty twenty one when in price inflation year over year at that point had risen to five percent in change. That Krugman had an op ed in the New York Times where he declared that price inflation, you know, was, was done with and he was mocking the people who had been warning earlier in 2021 about this huge inflation surge. And then he was like, but funny thing happened that over the summer, those things cooled off. So at that point he was running victory laps when price inflation at that point year over year was 5% and change. And Krugman thought, yep, see, I told you guys don't listen to Larry Summers. Of course, every month it kept going higher In December of 2021, that one I I was able to find, uh, Krugman has a thing that the Times gave the uh, title to, of The Year of Inflation Infamy, and he wasn't, you know, by that, he didn't pick the title they did, but it accurately reflected the tone of his article. He wasn't saying, wow, I made some infamously bad predictions. That's not what he was saying at this (laughs) point. Um, Let me just read a key paragraph near the bottom. He said, "To or... The top of the article to preview, I believe so. Again, this is Krugman in December of 2021. By the way, at this point, year over year CPI had now crept up to seven percent and change. Okay, and Krugman at this point says, To preview, I believe that what we're seeing mainly reflects the inherent dislocations from the pandemic rather than say excessive government spending. <laughs> I also believe that inflation will subside over the course of the next year and that we shouldn't take any drastic action. But reasonable economists disagree and they could be right. All right, so at this point, you know, he is sort of backing off a little bit. Well, month after month, CPI kept ticking up. It got up to like 8.9% year over year at one point um, as of July of 2022. And at that point, Krugman has an op-ed in the New York Times saying the title they gave it was, I was wrong about inflation. And so Krugman finally does admit, hemming and hawing, that yeah, okay, yeah, I was a little bit off. So for people who are familiar with Krugman's work, for him to actually come out and admit he was wrong about something is amazing. Now, of course, that all subsided. And now we've come full circle and Krugman's writing articles about how did mainstream economists get inflation so wrong? And he's, at, he's like, yeah, these guys were warning about. And so the specific move they're making, and I'm sorry, Jonathan, I know I've been uh, hogging the mic here. Oh, no, it's fine. The, the specific, what they're, the move now they're making is they're saying that they call themselves Team transitory. He's saying how the in tran- the inflation was just transitory. It was due to the supply issues from the pandemic and stuff like that. And we don't need to, the Fed doesn't need to tighten because if it does, that will cause a recession. And so let me just, uh, this was amazing when it happened. So in September of 2023, and I will link to this stuff, folks, Krugman tweets out and says, we could still have a recession But it will be a policy error, not something we needed to control inflation that turns out to have been transitory after all. Okay, and so I just want to walk you through just the magnificence of like like you have to marvel at him. Like it's (laughs) what he's he's casting spells. And so I I broke it down and then I promised Jonathan I will let you speak. Um, so I I like retweeted that, and then and I'm reading here from some news article picked this up because this, this was a, a pretty good tweet on my part that it, it got some traction, and I said I just want to make sure you folks understand how amazing his move is to review. W- number one, Summers, meaning Larry Summers, said we need to hike rates to rein in inflation. Up too bad that it's going to cause a recession. Two, Krugman said no, inflation is transitory; it will come down without Fed rate hikes, which would only cause a needless recession. Three, the Fed listened to Summers and it jacked up rates hard. Four, inflation comes down. Then Krugman says, see, there's no recession. Inflation was transitory. I was right. And then five, Krugman admits there still could be a recession, but if it does happen, it will be because of the rate hikes, which were unnecessary because inflation came down without a recession. All right, so I realize I went through that. If you were driving, maybe you know you didn't want to process that too much as you get into an accident, but it is just amazing the the argumentation they use. Um, so in a sense, and Jonathan, you and I have covered this a lot in previous episodes of this. We don't need to rehash the whole thing, but yeah, Summers and Krugman were both partially right or both partially wrong in their arguments. That right now Summers would have thought there was going to be a lot higher unemployment than there is in order for price inflation to come down. Um, but on the other hand, you know, Krugman. Also thought Fed rate hikes would have caused a recession. He was his point was just saying, no, we shouldn't raise rates. Trust me, the inflation will come down on its own. So the fact that the Fed didn't do what Krugman wanted, and now we're in this, you know, this weird thing from a Keynesian perspective where, gee, price inflation came down even though the economy didn't crash, Krugman wasn't predicting that either. So in any event, uh, I said a lot there, Jonathan, what, what do you have to say about all this?
0: Well, I, I was just thinking a uh, big picture about uh, differences in economic schools of thought. So I see people post these, uh, sometimes they're memes on, on the internet and it's uh, something to the effect of, uh, there's, there's consensus in the world of physics about the law of gravity. And there's consensus uh, in the medical science field about the effect of different drugs or, or how the, the human body operates uh and so and so, they'll ask, well okay uh economists where do you guys have consensus and of course there there there's hardly any consensus i mean there is some consensus or there's broad consensus on some like basic things like the law of demand uh or the fact of scarcity, something fundamental principles level like that uh but I, it's it's interesting why while you, while you were going through here's here's what happened and here's what Krugman said. Here's what happened, and here's what Krugman said. It just highlighted to me uh, just how how difficult it is to achieve economic consensus, even based on everybody looking at the same facts. Like we're all looking at the same data. I mean, obviously, we quibble about the construction of the data. We we quibble about um, how, like, what is causing what. But it it just goes to show that you. Since there's all of this lag, all all of these uh, all these different things that are that are causing the market outcomes, and they evolve over time. So, like a, a new policy is implemented, and then there's effects over the course of a year or even a decade. Uh, it, it makes it difficult to to say this caused this, and or this this policy was bad because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and so, uh, it's just it's just a really recent example of. Of economists not being able to agree simply because we're we're all looking at the same numbers and we all have our different theories about you know if if we have this sort of monetary policy then there's going to be these sorts of effects but you know sometimes the effects take take some time to to, to fully kick in or to fully be realized mm-hmm. in the data um, and so it's it's easy for Krugman to uh, to run these victory laps like you're talking about saying that oh the, we've achieved the low we've achieved low employment and we've solved or we're getting close to solving the inflation problem. And so he's quickly running the victory lab before there's any other effects going on. And then other people might say, well, probably need to wait, probably need to wait and see what's what's going to happen in 2024. Uh, like e- even the Federal Reserve will say we haven't seen the full effects of our monetary policy over the past um, year or so. And so it. I was just while, – while you were talking about that, I was just thinking about how difficult it is to achieve consensus in economics simply because we're coming from these different schools of thought.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Did you see, Jonathan, um, the, the reaction to the, the inequality literature? Like apparently there was some – I think it was in the JPE, Journal of Political Economy, article that was critiquing like the Sayez and Zuckman work on inequality and, and Piketty. Yeah, I, I
0: just saw some headlines.
1: OK. Well, yeah. It, so it's it's fine. Um, but what's amazing to me, it's and I tweeted this out too when it when it happened. So, f- folks, yes, there's this article that's critical of the claims made that, oh, oh, you know, inequality is is rising at the fastest rate since the Gilded Age and blah, 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 uh, associated with people like Thomas Piketty and uh, Saez and Zuckman. And, you know, and they're arguing back and forth and they're quoting different people and weighing in from a, but what was amazing to me, it's not that, which would you normally expect that, okay, we can all agree on, yep, the top 20% are making X percent more than they used to and the bottom, blah, blah, blah. And we can point out, well, it's, you know, different types of people and stuff you know, if the, if the freshmen at Harvard are 30 pounds heavier this year than they were in the class of 1960, uh that doesn't mean that all those people just stayed at Harvard for 50 years and kept eating hamburger, right? It's different people. So likewise, when you look at those statistics over time and, oh, the top 20% now earn blah, 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 compared to 1980, it's not the same people. But putting that aside, like here, they don't, you would expect them to be quibbling about that or that, or what's causing it. You know, yes, we can see the data and we can agree on what changed in the income percentiles and blah, blah, blah. But, we think it's because of tax cuts. Well, no, we think it's because of globalization. But they're not even there. They're arguing about whether inequality is increasing a lot or not. That's what's so amazing to me. Like they can't even agree on what outsiders would presumably think are, you know, standard observations or measurements, you know, up to a point. And that's, and it's not like they're quibbling on the margins. Like it's huge differences depending on which technique you use to try to gauge these things. Uh And I would argue that the people coming up with these really, uh, large indications that inequality is soaring where there's like five different dials. You have to make a decision about what you're going to do. It seems they always choose to put the dial in just the configuration that would, you know, amplify what that measured inequality is. So I'm agreeing with you, Jonathan, that, yeah, it's, it really is. And also I would say, the amount of area where there's broad consensus just keeps shrinking. Like it used to be the minimum wage. Like back in the 1980s, uh, even left-wing economists would typically agree that, oh, the way to help low-skill workers is not to jack up the minimum wage because that's just going to throw them out of work. Instead, we should you know do whatever, earned income tax credit or wh- whatever, uh, mandated benefits, extra support from the government. But in the 90s that started to change. So now mainstream economists, are, yeah, we can go ahead, we could have a minimum wage of twenty dollars an hour. That wouldn't do anything, you know. Um, and even you said scarcity. Y- yes, but some some MMT economists might lead you to believe that scarcity isn't really a practical constraint. Like, yeah, we can't just snap our fingers and have space stations around Mars tomorrow, but maybe by next year.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm not really sure where to go with that. Maybe, maybe we can talk about uh, some reasons why um, uh, why consumers have m- might be justified in being pessimistic. So like even, even thinking more broadly than just mm-hmm. the, the affordability of consumer durables, maybe we could talk about what, what sort of things could consumers be looking at besides the fact that their party isn't in power in Washington? Uh, what sort of things could they be looking at that would be uh, getting them to think about are, are getting them to be more pessimistic about about the economy in general. Um, and so, like one one thing that I pointed out is uh, the declining quality of of both goods and services, and how there's uh, long wait times for things like uh, sorts of things that uh, used used to be shipped very quickly from some online vendor um, now take a long time to, to be shipped. And there, I know I know some of this like Paul Krugman would blame on on supply chain issues that are still being ironed out from the from the COVID year. But it it seems to me like this sort of thing is it's it's a little bit more than that. It seems like there's there's been like this sea change in uh, customer service and the quality of goods that are being provided. And and at the same time, there's price increases. So quality is going down and price is going up. Wait times are going up. And at least it seems to me like this is that's at least one good reason to say that consumers are are pessimistic about the economy in general, uh, as opposed to just pure partisanship.
1: Yeah, exactly. And well, I mean, one thing is not to sound like a Chicago school economist, but I think objectively the economy is in bad shape and that the future is not, you know, bright for at least the next year. And so just to say, well, consumers rationally, it's not that economists have access to stuff that these idiot consumers, you know, that, you know, they have every reason to be nervous. I mean, things like the government borrowed 1.7 trillion dollars last year. That's kind of a big number, and they're paying you know more on uh, interest expense than I think that it topped the Pentagon's budget this cycle. And you know, looking at projections going forward, like some of the stuff you did, Jonathan, at the uh, Fort Myers event, you know, showcasing again not going to the Heritage Foundation, let alone Alex Jones, looking at the Congressional Budget Office's own projections. If they just stay the course, even if there's not a recession, the debt just keeps piling up, even, you know, as a share of the economy, the interest payments, it gets to the point where the government is going to be borrowing money to pay interest on the existing debt. And that just keeps, you know, widening. So, uh, you know, people see that stuff. So it it may be, of course, that they're getting that news funneled to them through, uh, you know, ideological channels, like, so somebody who's very bearish and hates the Biden administration can grab that stuff and show it to them. But it's not that those numbers are, are made up or that that's not really a thing. And so I think that yeah, people and as we've shown here, Jonathan, like the yield curve massively inverted, it still hasn't fully even crossed back up. It actually bounced down again. I was looking at that like in terms of, you know, going back up to the zero point and uh, it came back down. So, I mean, again, if we don't have a bad recession in 2024, Th- you know, that could happen. Just, there's free will. Humans are not you know, mindless automatons, but it would be a pretty big asterisk when people talk about an inverted yield curve signal in a recession. That, you know, these are objective things. Also, just to circle back, I want to make sure people understood just, again, how Krugman tried to have it both ways with that debate. <laughs> so again, it, Larry Summers in the start of 2021 was warning and saying, price inflation is getting out of hand. The Fed needs to tighten, and alas, that's going to cause unemployment to go up. I'm sorry to say that, folks, but you know I'm here just to tell you the situation. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And Krugman was said, no, we don't need, the Fed shouldn't tighten because inflation is going to come down on its own. And the reason we shouldn't tighten is because if we tighten, it's going to cause a recession that's unnecessary, because I'm telling you folks, don't worry, inflation will come down on its own. So the Fed definitely tightened, whether you look at interest rates, which spiked, or you know, money supply figures, which actually came down. So just they slowed the rate of growth. Price inflation subsided. It's still not where the Fed claims it wants it to be, but it definitely, you know, peaked and came down. And so Krugman, as uh, of September, was warning, saying, okay, this is looking good. See, we were right. Inflation came down on its own. But if there is a recession, it's because the Fed tightened. So you notice the move he's making there. He's saying, you know, Summers claimed... Fed tightens, that's going to bring down inflation but cause a recession. And Krugman wants to say, even if a recession does happen, you would think, okay, Summers is totally right. The Fed tightened, inflation came down, and then there was a recession. And no, what Krugman's going to try to argue if there is a recession next year is he's going to say, yep, the Fed tightened, inflation came down, there was a recession, but Summers was wrong and I was right because inflation came down first. There wasn't technically a recession, you know, in September or October of 2023. Therefore, that showed we didn't need to tighten for that to happen. And then this this recession was just completely, you know, an unnecessary byproduct of the stupid Fed tightening. So again, it it's as Jonathan was was saying. I think partly it's because their framework is different. The reason Krugman thinks that, just besides it, the fact that it allows him to be right, is <laughs> that in their model, what drives everything is aggregate demand. And so, yes, if price inflation is coming down, it's because the Fed slammed on the brakes, it cooled off, and so spending came down. And there, and that, so that should be, you know, synchronous with rising unemployment, right? It, it sh- there shouldn't be this huge lag of, you know, why would price inflation come way down and then six months later, recession start. But I'm saying in our framework, again, like looking at the inverted yield curve and things like that, if there's a recession that starts, next year certainly if it happens in the first 6 months it's not like on the chart of historical recessions that would look weird like oh wow for some reason there was a real le-. no that would be right on schedule you know in terms of what when the the tightening happens you know you and I Jonathan we did we how we went back to like looking at 2006 and 2007 people talking about a soft landing then so we're still right on schedule if a recession hits like i say especially if it's in the first half of 2024 there's no unusual lag between, you know, what the Fed did to bring down price inflation and then a subsequent crash. So again, there might not be, but I'm just saying at this point, if there is a crash starting in March or something, it's, it's not like, well, you know, we can forgive those left-leaning economists for missing that because it certainly looked like everything was fine. Like, no, this this is still right in the, the danger zone.
0: But what Krugman has done with his rhetoric over the past couple of years is he, he's – he's covered his bases. So like, so if, and when the recession happens, he, he's got a line that he can say. So like you said, he could say, see, I told you if we tighten too much, then it's going to cause a recession. Uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, a magic trick. So, so any listeners who, who like being surprised by magic tricks should, should cover their ears or skip ahead a few <laughs> seconds. Uh, but so one thing that a magician will do sometimes is they'll have the spectator makes some sort of guess or make, make some sort of uh, selection uh, among a few alternatives. And then the mentalist, the magician will, will, you know, dance around, do, mm-hmm. do some fancy sorts of stuff, uh, and eventually reveal that he knew what they were going to pick all along. But what the magician, and here's where I reveal the secret, what the magician has is they have, they have cards and are, are ways to reveal the spectator's guess um, in, in a multiple in multiple locations. So like maybe they have a balloon that they could pop that would reveal the spectator's guess, or maybe they have a card in their jacket pocket that they could pull out. See, this is this is what you uh selected. And and but the spectator doesn't know that that the magician has all of these other all these other bases covered, all the other things that the spectator could have guessed uh, or selected are somewhere else on the magician's person. Okay, so that's I what actually could didn't know that. that.
1: So but well, just so I understand, John, you're saying like they say go ahead pick a card any card and the person looks at it and you know shows the crowd and they don't show the musician the magician but he somehow knew what card they picked and then just knows okay I got to find us you know the 7 of diamonds that's the one that I put in my right pocket so that's where I'm going to pull it out of
0: yeah that's one way <laughs> yeah so it uh, it 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 the sort of trick that I described works better if there's like just a few alternatives like if there's four or five things that mm-hmm. the spectator can pick Uh, But like in the case of a card, like they have ways of forcing the selection of a card and and then they'll uh, and then they then they have the big reveal. But sometimes they'll have uh, like a backup. So like if the if the spectator accidentally picks something that the magician wasn't trying to force, then the magician has like this backup. See, and they'll say, so here here's my real prediction right here. So like they've got like backups like Krugman has backups. So like so no matter what happens, Krugman can say that he was right. Yeah, definitely. You remind
1: me. I I think it was David Copperfield. He, it was like something I did on not
0: TV. intend to get into. This
1: <laughs> this is this is more interesting than Krugman. Uh, it was it was on TV, and so and yeah. So he's doing tricks like with. I think it was the one we made the statue. Maybe I'm getting mixed up, but in any event, he's doing you know calling the audience up and like, hey, examine this thing and show that it's really you know a glass. It's solid, and that way that's way when he makes the person disappear, how does that happen? But one of them it was for the viewer at home, and it, like, flashed some stuff, and, you know, there were multiple things on the screen and told you to pick one, and then it moved them around and did some – and then the thing you picked, it moved into the middle, you know, and everything else disappeared. It said, this is what you picked. And so, of course, I'm looking at that thinking, well, it's not that they're somehow beaming this to my TV. Like, this is the same image everybody in the country who's watching this is seeing. And so then I, like, thought back to how did they – and I don't remember now what the what the trick was, but there was some way that it made it look like you were choosing from many things. When in fact, for some reason, the way it was designed, like everybody was gonna just choose the one thing, and then of course it, oh, you picked this one, didn't you? And everyone's, oh my <laughs> gosh,
0: how did it know? It read my mind, and then you know, tailored it to my television set. That's amazing. So, we're just we're just spoiling everybody's fun, aren't we? We are, so we're we are. spoiling Paul Krugman's rhetoric. We're spoiling the magician's fun.
1: <laughs> okay, so I. I suppose, uh, Jonathan, maybe just as to wrap this one up, um, I've noticed too, I, you've probably seen it, like again, the, once the talking points get embedded and people, the two sides start clashing over it, it reinforces it. So among like smug economists now, anytime something comes, like I see people now making fun of like the price of eggs because there was a period there where the price of eggs really went up high And people were complaining and so then you know
0: the you is orange juice juice is incredibly expensive now that's like a commodity that's increasing in price at least lately
1: but the the eggs became a football i mean they wouldn't be a very good one but uh where people were jockeying because then yeah the the people on the right were pointing to that like yeah thanks biden and then the people on the left again just in the smug like oh and then they came down at some point And so now it's like a punchline among left-leaning economists that I see on Twitter all the time where they, hey, remember when everyone was freaking out about eggs? Uh," And it's, again, it's just like normally that's what you would expect from people on the right. That, you know what I mean? Like they would use statistics and to dismiss, you know, some sob story that, you know, some individual family, the guy got laid off or whatever, and the Democrats are holding them up. And this is... You know, the Reagan economy is leaving this family and the people on the right would just be looking at aggregate statistics and, well, you know, and, and most people are doing better. And yeah, and yet it's totally reversed now. It's the, the right has, is largely anti-war. Well, except with Israel. And, uh, you know, and wanting to have uh, discussions with Russia and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's the left who are real hawkish and are literally making fun of people who are complaining that food is expensive. It's just shocking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So all sorts of things are changing and, and I, yeah, you're right. The the sorts of uh, shifts in the positions uh, between the left and the right is it's, it's been pretty spectacular to watch, not just since COVID, but really since, uh, since Trump. So since 2016, there's been all sorts of like these shifts. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, and again, I think partly the way it, it happens almost naturally is the two sides reinforce each other. So like, you know, you grab a left-wing economist and you say, R- rising price inflation, you know, is that good or bad for the bottom 20% of wage earners? They're not me sure, but to say, saying the opposite of what Fox News is reporting, they're sure that's the right thing to do, <laughs> you know? And so the fact that both sides kind of rotate simultaneously, I think reinforces it that they're sure, yeah, yeah, we're still arguing with those idiots over there, so we must be in the
0: right. Yeah, yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot of uh, tribalism. Uh, One thing that I uh, forgot to mention regarding uh, uh, consumer sentiment is that uh, I I noticed that uh, credit card delinquency has uh, gotten up to the the same rates that they were in the 2007 and 2008 uh, time period. So I think, I think that there's, there really is like a lot of like hard facts that are driving uh, consumer sentiment to, to be as bad as it is now. And it's, and I think the economists who were just looking at the combination of price inflation and unemployment they're they they have this like really narrow view and they're not taking the broader look. They're not they're not considering the quality of goods, they're not considering uh maybe the effect of the uh, bank failures that happened earlier this year and how that could be uh, causing consumers to be uh, pessimistic because I I know you mentioned the yield curve but I'm not sure that you know your average joe has is consulting the yield curve. Uh I mean c- certainly those sorts of events Trickle into just general financial reporting, and so that might cause them to be a little more skittish. But I, but there's all sorts of things, like you said, the, the economy is not doing great. There's all sorts of things that could be causing the consumer to be uh, to be more pessimistic, and and for Paul Krugman to 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 you know throw his hands up and say, so, oh, it's those Republicans who are just angry uh, that they're not in power, uh, and that's what's causing this this university of Michigan consumer sentiment survey to, 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 look so bad, even though if you look at inflation and unemployment, everything is, is going great. I think, I think that's really just, it's, uh, it's not fair. And it seems like he's just, uh, like I said, it's it's his own partisanship that's driving that conclusion as, as opposed to, you know, actually looking at the, at the data.
1: Yeah. And, and you're right. I, to be clear, I wasn't saying that the average household necessarily is consulting the yield curve every three weeks when they're making vacation plans, but that kind of stuff would might be what the people they read, the pundits they read or the you know the news sources they rely on, those people could be bearish because of objective things like that, and then that's filtering down to them uh, as well. Okay. Well, folks, we will link to Jonathan's article as well as some other resources of things we touched on today. Jonathan, as
0: always, thanks for your time and your insights. Thanks for having me, Bob. And I'm sorry I I ruined your fun at your next magic show.
1: Yes, I will have to uh, do something else at this point that involves (laughs) rabbits. Well, I can't probably because I bet you rabbits are really expensive now, even though (laughs) my, my wages have gone up. Thank you, folks, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
0: Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.